Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hey guys, it's Kristen with The Wall Street Skinny and I got Jen here. Hey guys. How's it going? Um, it's going really well. Uh, so full disclosure, this is a double podcast day for us. So we just finished recording with an amazing interviewee and we're so excited to publish that episode. Um, but again, we're banking those episodes so we can be lazy in some future week slash when our lives are totally out of control. It's for, yeah, when the wheels come off. <laughs> Not like the wheels are on every single day. Uh, we true. are we are triple booked tonight. I've got a work thing. I've got something for my older kids school and I've got something for my younger kids school all at the exact same time tonight my youngest kid came in while I was in the shower this morning and he was like mommy who's putting me down to bed tonight I was like honestly I don't know like probably your older brother or the dog at this point maybe the dog will read you a bedtime story I I, we're (laughs) yeah we're always firing on all cylinders I am all over the place. I will go on Amazon to order some like detergent pods and then I'll be like, oh, I have to reply to this person because I need to order some furniture. And then it's like, oh, I need to do this other thing. I have to film a TikTok video. Right. Well, get ready to move into your new house must be, it's one thing to do it when you're in the same city, but doing everything remotely. Well, yeah. That's well, there's also then difficult. the element of the packing up and organizing. And I'm grateful for everyone who has gotten gifts for my kids and everything. But the amount of just new toys that have come in, I have to like figure out how to- Because it's birthday season in It's birthday house. season. Yeah. All of all three of my kids and me and my husband were all spring. It's just like boom, 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 boom. But having to pack up and everyone's like, oh, have you started packing? I'm just like, no, I haven't done anything yet. So dear so. listeners, if you want to get Kristen a birthday gift for her birthday in June, um, <laughs> send her a gift certificate to like two men in a truck so that someone can pack her up <laughs> no we actually so thank god john's company is paying for the movers so Reload we're getting benefits. yeah we're getting someone to come and pack everything have them do I, a I dish pack to, i but i have to figure out what i want to because i don't want to bring everything mm-hmm. i have a whole bunch of extra clothes that i need to organize and there's just a lot of organization that has to happen. My mother-in-law is coming to help me and she's asking about certain weekends. I'm like, well, that weekend I'm going to the American Girl Doll store. I'm doing like Taylor Swift. It's just like, there's always something. Oh, wait, you need to tell our listeners about Uh, your big victory. So my husband called me two days ago 
I don't know how this happened, but he got a text from Ticketmaster saying that they had released a number of tickets from production holds, and he was able to buy four tickets, and they were only 200 bucks each. I mean, so we were going to Taylor next week, next Friday. Uh, my five-year-old is super excited. I don't know That's if she's awesome. going to. But yeah, so. <laughs> Wait, are you taking the whole family? No, we're taking me and my husband, my daughter, and then I think his sister. So oh, Elizabeth. that'll be so much Elizabeth's fun. Coming. <laughs> oh, Elizabeth's going to tear up that dance floor. I know. So <laughs> John's coming along. I, he was like, well, you can take a friend if you want. And I was like, no, I kind of actually would like to have you in case something goes with Catherine. So he can deal right. with that. Oh, and so I can he watch can be the, the one to take your daughter home yeah. so you can stay there until the stay. end. <laughs> Elizabeth. Yeah, that's, so that's awesome. A, that's trying to scope out Maddie Healy and like lively <laughs> in the VIP booth or Pretty whatever. Much. Yes. Oh, I'm so jealous. I was actually in Philly this past weekend and the Taylor Swift concert was happening mm-hmm. there. And it was, we were there for my husband's 15 year business school reunion. So literally you'd go to a bar and like one half of the bar would be like sparkles. Mm-hmm. And the other half of the bar was suits because it was like, it. are you here for Taylor or are you here for Wharton? Yeah. <laughs> it's yep. hilarious. Yep. And I was like, you guys are great, but I kind of wish I was here for Taylor. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. Wharton reunions or Taylor Swift. I don't know. That, that's I a mean, hard those, one. Those that's hard one. kids know how to party. Um, I imagine. But yeah, so uh, so the episode we have for you today comes on the heels of last week's episode where we talked about some of the things going on with the current regional banking crisis. So many of you who are starting your jobs now or thinking about applying for jobs in the financial services world may be thinking, oh gosh, are things about to go bad? What's going to happen to my job offer? Mm-hmm. We've talked to some of you who have been experiencing hiring freezes at banks, things like that. So we thought it might be cool to share our like personal trauma stories from mm-hmm. 2008 when we went through the major financial crisis of that year. We yes. both had front row seats. We were spring chickens back in the day. So mm-hmm. we experienced things from a very different perspective than we would now kind of at our age in our careers. Mm-hmm. And also fr- from a different perspective than those of you who might be listening, who were not working in the financial services industry at the time, but had yeah. to deal with a fallout, whether it be whatever happened to your home or your parents' home, or mm-hmm. whatever happened to your job in a completely unrelated sector as a result. So hopefully no matter where you are kind of in your journey, this episode might be a little enlightening. And uh, we have some pretty crazy stories from that time. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, we do want to speak on how we climbed out of that disaster and right. and managed to both continue on in our careers in Wall Street after kind of staring into the abyss. <laughs> right, right. I mean, the thing is, it does create opportunities as well. I know for me, I was initially hired, and we'll get into this, into the CDO group, which I realized about after two weeks on the desk, this is probably not a niche that I want to get stuck in. And I felt like I'd get stuck there. But because of the whole crisis, I was then able to move to a few different groups and actually ended up in the group that I probably would have chosen had I had a little more knowledge about what things were going in, which was in financial sponsors. So had the whole crisis not happened, I would have been stuck in CDOs. <laughs> anyway, so we'll get into it. That's but, exactly right. Yeah. No, from yeah. crisis oftentimes yeah. breeds opportunity. One of the things that you'll hear without Lehman going under, I literally would not have, I met my husband. We'll talk about this, but I mean, my entire <laughs> family is here thanks to Lehman going under. So I guess thanks, Dick Fold. Sorry um, to everyone who had married. Sorry to everyone else, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but Kristen, you touched a little bit about where you were in your career. So let's, let's go back. Yeah. Let's go back to 2007, maybe yep. the January, spring of 2008. Where yeah. were you 
when everything kind of started to turn. Or I guess before we even say that, (laughs) I guess we should explain that in the early 2000s, after we came out of the recession and the the 2001, 2002 dot-com bubble bursting post 9-11, for about six years, Wall Street was on a tear. It was a heyday of investment banking. And it wasn't all Wolf of Wall Street, 1980s, people snorting cocaine off of strippers in the office. Right, right. <laughs> was, that was not, that was not, no. yeah. It was like this renaissance of Wall Street. And it was the heyday of the investment banks. The investment mm-hmm. banks were making money hand over fist. And there was really this elite group of investment banks that was kind of mm-hmm. at the top tier. It was Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Lehman, Lehman. Brothers, Bear Stearns, the kind of classic, what they used to call white shoe investment banks. And what started happening was all the commercial banks started really beefing up their investment banking operations because they wanted to be like these guys. They saw, again, that they were making money. So so JP Morgan and and City and And a lot of that, too, was the trading side of things because they were basically being run like hedge funds. That's exactly right. So all these firms... We're taking on risk that today you'd be like, what? But these investment banks didn't have depository institutions attached to them for the most part. So they were, and they were much less regulated. So they were taking on, I mean, a lot of the clients I covered were what were called the prop desks, the proprietary trading desks within other investment banks. So at my investment bank, I was covering other banks and their traders were trading a mini hedge fund within that bank. Super levered positions, super risky stuff. You know what's interesting? We were talking earlier, Jen and I, we did a poll on our Instagram and asked people, are you interested in sales and trading or investment banking? And it was like heavily skewed towards investment banking. And Jen Mm -hmm. was just shocked because back in the day when we started, everyone wanted sales and trading because everyone wanted to be a trader. Everyone wanted to be a trader. And Mm -hmm. now it's kind of gone the other way. I think a lot of that is probably because back in that time, you could make so much money at an investment bank because you basically were at a hedge fund. Right, right. I think there were fewer opportunities in things like private equity because rates were higher and we were in a just much different environment. So now I think so much of the interest in investment banking is driven by, oh, this is the path to private equity and private equity is where everyone wants to be because- well, how can traders make so much in a low interest rate environment, right? right? (laughs) But uh, I think that's actually a misconception. Traders are among the highest paid people on Wall Street, whether they are at investment banks or not. So if you're at a hedge fund, it's it's a little more. (laughs) Potentially, potentially. That's true. It's it's higher volatility. You could have a great year or your fund could blow up. (laughs) Listen, if you're Paul Tudor Jones or, you know, Alan Howard, yeah, you're you're having a great day compared to some line trader at a random bank. But- Senior traders at Wall Street firms make very good money. Right. And they also have the stability of not getting blown out every year like you might at a hedge fund right. if you make one wrong move. Right. That's um, true. But anyways, but yeah. yeah. So this was in the, the heyday of proprietary trading at the banks. And we try not to speak a ton about the specific firms just out of a desire to not skew anyone's perception. But I can't really tell the story of how Lehman Brothers went under and I was at the forefront if I don't tell you that I worked at Lehman Brothers. Right, right, right. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. So in 2007, I was just coming out. So I graduated undergrad 2006. I did my master's. I graduated 2007, got my job off for Morgan Stanley, and now was interviewing for different groups. And I was like, oh, CDOs, I recognize that. And I'm an engineer. I like the mathy stuff. So that's why I went into that. Not really knowing a lot about it. 
when I got onto the desk, I was like, well, this is kind of boring. <laughs> I didn't think it was that exciting. No offense to anyone who works in that, but you're just like packaging up loans. And so, yeah, so if you so want to, yeah, yeah. See, what are CDOs? So CDOs stand for collateralized debt obligations. Like what mm-hmm. the heck is that? Honestly, just think about if you go back and listen to our last episode about mortgage-backed securities, it's basically that where you're taking a whole bunch of different loans, right? We're talking about you have like a mortgage from Susie and a mortgage from Joe and a mortgage from Ocean and you have all these people and you're packaging these loans, in this case to people for their house, you're packaging them together and then you're taking a bunch of loans of varying degrees of credit worthiness and pulling them all together and stacking the cash flows on top of each other. And the highest risk cash flows go at the bottom, medium risk in the middle, lowest risk at the top. They would then assign a credit rating to either all of those different tranches or to the entire structure as a whole. Yes. And then you could either sell out pieces of the tranches or sell the entire instrument as a whole. And you would get access to those cash flows and wear that risk. And so the types of loans that were in CDOs weren't necessarily home loans. They actually depended. So there were at Lehman, I think that they were doing a lot of CEOs where it was actually, they were buying mortgages, Mm mortgage-backed security, sorry. So it was almost like a second order securitization Mm -hmm. because you've already securitized something once when you do Mm -hmm. the MBS. Mm -hmm. Well, now you're buying into that and now you're putting it into a second order securitization. And that is what ultimately kind of took down the whole... (laughs) economy was these, the the CDOs where you're packaging these mortgage-backed securities. Now you could make CDOs out of other things. And that was the group that I was in. It was actually more, it was called collateralized loan obligations. They Mm -hmm. were corporate loans. So they were a little bit less risky. But the Mm -hmm. thing is that the investors who were investing in these CLOs are the same investors who were investing in these CDOs with these mortgage and they're the ones that start to get blown up. But by the time I got to the desk, there was like the tail end of a deal and then everything dried up. And I was like sitting there like reading the New York Times. And so I was like, <laughs> shit, I got to move into a new group. And I started mm-hmm. to interview for other groups very quickly. But anyway, so that is 2007. And Jen, why don't you share? You know, so so I, uh, I spent 2007 working on the interest rate sales desk um, at Lehman Brothers. And I was covering a whole variety of accounts. I was mostly covering hedge funds. I covered some some mortgage servicers, um, and we don't need to get into what they are, but I was covering, I mean, some of the biggest accounts on wall street at the age of 22. It was so exciting. It was so fast paced. And the thing about Lehman, and I swear, and everyone we interview who either worked at Lehman or touched Lehman, Lehman was this magical place. The culture at Lehman was, and people talk about corporate culture, and well, I got that sense myself. I was telling you when I was interviewing for their CEO. Right, you I was were like, like this I, is, I love this, this is place. place where I want to yeah. be. I don't know what it was. It was like, I don't know if they were pumping something through the ventilation system or whatever, but like, it was this wonderful place. It was very collegial. Like everyone knew everyone. Everyone wanted to be your mentor. Everyone wanted to be your friend. It was just, and, and of course now it may seem like I view it through rose colored glasses, but I still talk to these people. I mean, right. it was, it was a really just different breed. And so, um, when I started my career, I, I think I've mentioned this before. I was in this joint venture between investment banking and sales and trading. And, um, 
there's this phenomenon that happens when you're working really long hours all day long. You are kind of looking around the floor because listen, you're not going out and meeting people and going on dates. You're working all the time. Right. So I basically like stood up on the trading floor, looked around and I was like, who's still here? Oh, that guy. I guess I'll date him. <laughs> so I started dating a guy in the investment banking division and he and everyone else had hero worship for this woman mm. who was in the hedge fund group. Her name was Erin Callen. What do you say? Hedge fund group. Was it like an internal hedge fund at Lehman or was that, that was no. like, they were so covering hedge funds. Kind of like, yeah. So the they were the group of hedge kind funds. of, yeah, but yeah. they weren't helping necessarily with those financial sponsors acquiring companies. Yep. They were advising those financial sponsors on strategic decisions for themselves as a firm. Erin was like this at the time legend because she would roll up. She was this fiery beautiful woman who would wear like leather mini skirts on the trading floor. And she was just the darling of Lehman brothers at the time. And like every single person on the trading floor was just obsessed with her, including the guy that I was dating. And she like rocketed into the CFO role summer of 2008. So the the spring leading up to 2008, again, I'm working on the trading floor. I'm dating this guy back in banking. (laughs) Aaron Callen's the CFO. Life is awesome. We're all high-fiving. Everyone's loving life at Lehman. And Shit starts to go bad, right? Is this when Bear Stern Bear Stern goes, under? goes yeah. under? But when Bear went under, Bear, I actually got my first job offer at Bear Stearns. And I really liked that firm. Mm. Bear looked a lot like Lehman in terms yeah. of the culture and like the people and the setup. It was just, it was small. It was yeah. intimate. And so Bear went under. I was like, thank goodness I didn't yes. work there. Yeah. Well, that's my, my roommate. The one I was telling you about, we got mm-hmm. our offer together and she had her job offer also at Bear. And she was like, thank God I didn't take that. Yeah. But even when Bear went under, we were like, huh, that's unfortunate for them. Yeah, like sucks. that's having an, a, a really, you know, unfavorable impact on our stock price, but we're fine. We're mm. Lehman. We're awesome. Although sitting in the CDO group. So the structured product group, in the fall, uh-huh. shit was actually starting to get a little scary. So there was rounds of layoffs that were starting to happen. Mm-hmm. And it was round after round. And it would they would announce a layoff. And I mean, this is happening now a little bit where like there's layoffs going on. But they would announce a layoff. And it's like you're on the trading floor. And you would see someone from HR would come and they would go row by row and you would then see people start to leave. And it would happen and it had gone on like one, two, three, four. The group that I was in had 40 people when I started. By the time, I mean, I was lucky and I'll get to this, but I moved into a different group. So as a group of 40, three people left by like six months later. That Um, is crazy. Yeah. So So, CDOs and the structured product groups within fixed income. You guys were like the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. It was clear stuff was bad. It's like you're sitting there and you know something's coming. It's like I remember my my wedding and we knew there was a hurricane coming. <laughs> and you're just sitting there like the blue sky, it's all blue, but there's a hurricane coming. Like we see it. Yeah. yeah, so we did not have that same feeling at all because remember I was on the interest rates right. trading desk. So I mean, when there's volatility in the markets, that tends to be great for interest rate trading because the more volatility is, the more you can charge to get into and out of trades because you're taking on more risk and it's more reasonable to pass along some portion of that risk to your customers. So we were on fire. And remember, I was trading derivatives. So again, every single person who entered into a derivative with Lehman Brothers now has (laughs) Lehman Brothers credit exposure because if that trade moves in the client's favor... Lehman owes them money. Right. So they have exposure to Lehman going bankrupt. But again, people were trading with us left, right, and center. They were not worried about mm-hmm. us at all. Our stock yeah. price was going down a little bit, but eh, who cared? Right. 
And so again, it was fast and furious. It was all day long. So were you, are we still in 2007? No, we're in 08. We're in 08. So I want to transition a teeny bit because if people are going through something Mm -hmm. where you need to now find a new job, I was sitting there. I don't want to be reading the New York Times. I'm supposed to actually be doing work. And by the way, like I'm watching people get constantly laid off. Like I need to get into a new group. So I started and thank goodness. I mean, this is the thing that's so amazing about the analyst program is that I had all of these friends and I had networked. By the way, like take advantage of your analyst program, take advantage of the nights out, take advantage of the networking. And so I was able to get a whole bunch of interviews by just calling up those people in my analyst class and be like, oh, like we need someone on this group and then we need someone here. And so I started to interview and I got a number of offers within the sales and trading within the firm, Mm -hmm. but within a different division. So within capital markets, I got an offer in project finance. I got an offer in, I think it was like the investment grade derivatives group, but they couldn't actually make it happen because there was a hiring freeze and it was an internal hiring freeze. You could only move within the division. Mm -hmm. You couldn't cross divisions, Mm -hmm. but we see all these banks start to have a lot of problems and guess what they need to do? They need to raise money. And who's going to give them equity? No. So what do people want to do? They want to do converts. So you have bank after bank after bank starting to need to do convertible debt raises. And that particular group kind of had a reputation. What converts are, I guess. Yeah, I probably should. So convertible debt is just debt where you have the option to convert into equity. So it's like you have the protection, the downside protection of having it be debt, because if they go bankrupt, you usually do get to some amount of recovery, but you have this downside protection. You should get your principal back. However, if things go really well, you get the upside. The share price can go up and go to the moon. So investors were... And by the way, actually with SVB, they were trying to do a convert raise when they, that was mm-hmm. what Goldman was trying to um, to do for them. But anyway, so they were desperate. They were doing deal after deal after deal because all these banks needed to raise money. And this particular group had a reputation. It was very technical. And a lot of people in capital markets do tend to be maybe a little less technical. And so they were able to like bridge the hiring freeze and I was able to get a role in converts. So I'm sitting there now in the converts and that's, now we're in spring 2008. And you watching were, that's where you were weathering the yeah. storm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, after Bear went under in spring of 2008, um, scrutiny turned to Lehman because Lehman looked a lot like Bear. Just yeah. like we said last week, after SVB mm-hmm. went under, people were like, who else has this kind of exposure? Yeah. And they looked at First Republic. Lehman looked a lot like Bear, only <laughs> quite frankly, probably a little bit worse. Um, <laughs> and so... Remember, Lehman had this massive exposure, levered exposure to mortgage-backed securities. And so many of these mortgage-backed securities that were being represented to be highly rated or at least viable assets, they were backed by loans that just simply had no creditworthiness right. of the borrowers whatsoever. So you would have people walk in like, hey, I want to buy this house. Oh, you need $500,000? Great. You don't have to show us that you're earning any money. We don't care because everything's great. Right. Here you go. Everything's great. Here's all this money. I think you said, uh, John reminded you, I had forgotten about that term, ninja loans, Mm -hmm. no income, no job, no assets. Those are the kind of loans that were underlying these securities. And so Lehman was levered to the hilt owning these Mm -hmm. things. And so that woman I mentioned, Erin Callen, the CFO, she, I remember, was tasked with this big investor call, I want to say in like late spring, early summer of 2008. And the rest of the C-suite just kind of fed her to the wolves basically. And she just totally bombed it. And the, the hedge funds out there 
saw what was happening. This one guy, David Einhorn, who ran Greenlight Capital, literally like called a private meeting with Aaron Callen. And apparently after that private meeting, he took it upon himself to short every conceivable share of Lehman Brothers under the sun. And he would get on CNBC every day and be like, this stock is garbage. This company's a disaster. It's going down. And we're all sitting on the train floor like, who is this guy? He sucks. (laughs) I mean, I remember the MDs would be like shaking their fist at the TV, be like, Einhorn's the worst. Like, Mm -hmm. but- our stock would go down every day. And listen, I was 22 years old. So I had been paid my salary and bonus in pretty much just cash. Cause by the way, that's how you got paid back in the day. You got paid as a junior person, predominantly just in cash. It was not enough money that they were like worried about you running away. And you would only really start getting paid in stock as you got more senior in the company because that stock was gold. Cause that stock kept going up all those other years. So it was like, Ooh, I want to get paid in stock one day. Now everyone gets paid in a lot of deferred stock because because mm-hmm. that's the cheapest way for them to pay you because the stock yeah. of these banks doesn't always go down. And most people try to sell it the second it vests. Mm-hmm. But anyways, that's another story for another time. So I'm sitting there and, you know, these people around me who are twice my age, who own expensive homes, who mm-hmm. have families, yep. who have mortgages, they are watching their entire net worth crumble before their eyes. And right. still showing up to work every day at 6 a.m., bright and chipper, being like, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. We're absolutely going to be fine because that was the culture. And remember now, Erin Callen got blown out that summer. She left before we actually went down. That whole year was just like the death of my heroes. It started in February when the Patriots, yes, I'm a Patriots fan. I was raised in Boston. Okay, The Patriots lost that awful Super Bowl to the Giants. It was such garbage after the undefeated season. I remember that. Right. And then here's Aaron Callen getting fired after three months on the job or whatever, after being the darling of Wall Street and getting profiled on the front page of the Wall Street Journal as Aaron keeps Mm -hmm. it cool or whatever. I mean, just a fashion icon, everything. Yeah. So all my heroes are starting to collapse around me and this was also before by the way like I feel like in the past 10 years everyone's lost faith in all these American institutions these Mm -hmm. banks to us at the time were these unshakable institutions right they represented something that was as close to permanence as we could conceive of at the age of 22 it was so unfathomable to me that these firms weren't going to continue to exist it was like oh we're just going to go through a rough patch and it'll be fine and so like with any bad relationship and I was in this relationship at the time (laughs) that was on a similar path Mm -hmm. we probably should have stopped dating long ago nothing against this guy very lovely man but like We were not right for each other. And here we are now. And he's been working all these crazy hours. I'm like, what are you working on? He's like, I can't tell you. And I was like, oh, okay. You're probably having an affair. Like that tracks. But um, he was working these crazy hours. And I knew he was working closely with a lot of the big executives. Was he also in the interest rate? No, he was in banking. Oh, he was was in banking. Okay, that makes Something called the Tax Solutions Group, which sounds crazy. But they were basically the Swiss army knife of the investment banking division. And they had them working on all these crazy things because it was really just this like hack team, like sneakers of like these really smart guys who could Mm -hmm. come up with really creative solutions. And so we had this vacation plan for the first week in September to like get away and reconnect. Mm -hmm. And like when you're junior, you only get to take like one week of vacation a year, at least back in the day, it was really frowned upon to take a lot of vacation even though we probably should have been breaking up at that time. We're like, okay, well, we've got this non-refundable trip to Greece booked, so let's go to Greece. <laughs> and at this point, Lehman stock had gone from whatever it was, like $150 a share to like 11 mm-hmm. And we hop on a plane to Greece, and we're bopping around the Greek islands. We're having fun. And 
at one point we were on the ferry from, I think, Mykonos to Santorini or something like that. And we're listening on his BlackBerry to the Lehman investor call. And he's like, Jen, this is what I've been working on all these months. The solution to save Lehman Brothers. And they're going to announce it on this call. I'm like, oh, my God. So we're here. We're we're like huddling over this BlackBerry in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And again, it's a BlackBerry. For those of you who don't know this archaeological artifact that predated the iPhone. We can barely, it's like a crackly signal. We're listening to this call. I'm like, what are they going to say? How are they going to save Lehman? And basically they announced like a good bank, bad bank plan. They were like, we're going to have a bad bank where we're going to put all the bad stuff (laughs) and we're going to have a good bank and everyone's going to still love us. (laughs) And he looks at me like, what do you think? And I was Mm -hmm. like, we are not going to have jobs when we get back to America on Monday. Let's go get really, really drunk. Mm -hmm. And when we come back to work on Monday, we can basically just accept our fate as the unemployed because this is a terrible idea. And that's exactly how the market took it. And so... I will never forget this. So this is how it all went down. So like it was, we got back on a Saturday and because like the relationship wasn't going anywhere, we were like, all right, see you. Like I'll see you on Monday. (laughs) Like (laughs) didn't even go home to the same place after the trip. And on Sunday, the Patriots were playing. So Mm -hmm. I went to like a local bar and ate wings, had a couple of beers and watched the football game and went home and got into my pajamas and was sauteing vegetables at about 10 PM. And I get a call from my dad and he's like, you got to go to the office. I was like, why? You know? And yeah, I had like CNBC on in the background because it was, everyone was like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Bank of America had bought Merrill Lynch. I think this was that same time. Yeah, exactly. So there had been all these rumors that KDB, the Korean development bank, were going to buy Lehman, but then they were like, we don't want to touch this thing. Yeah, no. So all these rumors were flying and it was like, what's going to happen? And there were camera crews basically stationed outside of the Lehman Brothers office 24-7 that you'd have to walk by to get to work. And my dad was like, you got to go to the office because they are, you're going to go under tonight and they are going to lock those doors. And my entire net worth as a 22-year-old was tied up in about three pairs. Uh, this was like right after Sex in the City, right? Like Manolo mm-hmm. Blahnik and Jimmy Choo shoes that I kept under the desk because I would wear flip-flops or sneakers to work because yes, I would yes, walk to work yes. and then change in my high heels. Yep. And I was like, my shoes! <laughs> so in my pajamas, definitely still buzzed from having drank beer and watched football all day. I ran from my apartment. I lived in Midtown. So, I mean, I only had to run like four blocks, but I ran over to the firm at 10th and 8th. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I lived at 50th and 8th and I worked at 49th and 7th. Mm-hmm. And... um so New York's on this grid. Anyways, you'll get it if you work in Manhattan. This is not far. <laughs> Although I did have to cross Broadway and like elbow and Elmo or two out of the way every time. Seriously. But um, but anyways, so I run into the office in my PJs and everyone's in there and everyone's mm. been in there all day. They've got those little boxes, you know, those sad boxes that yeah. people take when they clear out their yeah. desk and everyone's clearing out their desk. Everyone's opening the bottle of wine that they had stored under their desk or the bottle of brandy or burp brandy who drinks brandy like whiskey or bourbon or whatever they've been like saving for a special occasion Well, they probably they, like, got some stuff from the clients will send you stuff i actually got sent a bottle of pappy van winkle from i don't even know what that is it's, it's this bourbon that i stupidly gave to my brother that was worth like two thousand dollars last time give the bourbon back yeah. um, he drank <laughs> He has a little left. <laughs> Everybody was like clearing out their desks, drinking, crying, hugging. And of course, I, the dumb analyst, or I guess I was a newly minted associate, 
I hadn't brought a box. I didn't have a box. <sighs> but because like the janitors were still working on the weekends oh because God. it was like this wonderful place. They were like loyal to the end. They had just changed the trash bags. You had like an individual Aww. trash bag under your desk. So I, oh, I ripped the fresh trash bag out from my trash can and stuffed everything I owned, my shoes, all my papers, all my personal belongings that were my desk in this trash bag. And everyone was like, where are we going next? And the head of the mortgage trading desk was like, back to my place. So we all <laughs> filed out at about midnight or 1 a.m. from the trading floor. And I, like a little waif in a Disney movie, mm-hmm. I had my trash bag slung over my shoulder in my pajamas. Wow. I get a call from my boyfriend and he's like, my boss just called. You're on TV. Wait, you and were? Yes, because they caught oh. the cameras caught me with the trash bag over my shoulder, and they were like, "Poor bedraggled Lehman employee with all her belongings so in a bag, funny. like looking extremely unfortunate exiting I the building." I want to get that footage. I know, right? And so we all go back to the mortgage trader's house and continue partying there until about four in the morning, and then <laughs> we didn't know what was happening, but everyone was like, yeah. "It's over. Lehman's gone under. They're dead." But we we were all like, no, we are showing up first thing in the morning. So yeah. I literally went home, showered, <laughs> put on a black dress, and I will share the photo. I have a photo from that Monday yeah. morning of the trading floor of us all in a row. I actually look like surprisingly put together, a little bit red-faced, <laughs> but everyone there was still drunk from the night before and like had been crying or whatever. But we all showed up first thing in the morning, ready to work. And it was the weirdest thing because we were like, yeah. we're going to show up until they turn our badges off. But yeah. we got emails from HR being like until further notice please continue to do your job (laughs) and we showed up and you have to understand like these trading floors these are football fields with rows and rows and rows of people the phones are constantly ringing there's clients people are yelling trades it was silent that morning we were all just sitting there being like what's gonna happen (laughs) and we had gone bankrupt yeah I mean but to the end it was just crazy and so yeah what was it like you know across the street I remember that weekend, my parents were in town and there was a lot of turmoil. Everyone was kind of watching these three remaining investment banks, Lehman, Morgan, Stanley, Goldman Sachs. And Mm -hmm. then we're coming back from dinner and I see, I think my phone, Wall Street Journal notification, Lehman went under. I'm just like, holy shit. And then it's sort of like what happened with SVB where everyone now turns their attention to who's next. And guess Mm -hmm. what? It's Morgan Stanley and it's Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. And so... I remember showing up, I think it was like that Monday, and similar to you guys, we were on a trading floor, tons of Bloomberg's, tons of CNBC, everyone's watching our share price, the share price going down. And similar to that David Einhorn, who was shorting tons of Lehman stock, that's what people started to do to Goldman and to Morgan Stanley. One of the trades they would do is they would they would short the stock, and then they would buy, it was called CDS, credit default swaps. They would buy CDS on the debt. And I always remember people saying, it's kind of like buying insurance on your neighbor's house and then driving your car through the right, living room. Right, right. CDS is an insurance policy that pays you out if the underlying credit defaults. Right. And so you're, you're literally shorting the crap out of that stock and then also buying the insurance. So you're kind of causing the thing to go down while you're also then make money off of things going well. So what Morgan Stanley and Goldman, they needed emergency rescue capital. And so Goldman was off getting an investment from Warren Buffett. Morgan Stanley, we were working on getting this investment from, I think it was Mitsubishi. Mm -hmm. And because of the way that these deals were structured, they were structured as converts. And so Mm -hmm. that's how Warren Buffett invested in Goldman. And it was like a $5 billion investment. Same thing with this Mitsubishi deal. And the MDM sitting next to was working on it. Again, it's this top secret deal, kind of like your boyfriend, like, 
good bank, bad bank. Here we have this guy sitting next to me. He's like this MD. He's older. And he actually wasn't that old. He's probably our age at the time. I remember thinking he was older. He's probably like 40. 40. And, but he's like so stressed out. He has like a heart rate monitor. He's getting like calls from John Mack and Ruth Peratt and all the senior C-level executives like uh-huh. to do this deal. And anyway, the deal does end up going through. Yeah. This is also around the time when the whole TARP situation was announced. So what does it stand for? The Treasury, Treasury Assistance Rescue Program Rescue or something. Program. I forget. We're going to yeah. have to look that up. Guys, and don't quote us on that. No, I think that sounds right. And it's interesting That's there where too they made because- basically every bank take funds whether they needed yes. it or not. Yes. And actually, because the way that it was structured, again, yay converts. It wasn't exactly convert. U.S. government was essentially lending money in the form of what's called preferred stock. We'll have to do a whole thing on that. It's kind of like debt, but you're getting paid for it. So it's not like they were just given money for free. They actually did have to pay, not a lot, but they had to pay a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they were also given ownership in the bank. So they were given options. The government but was given. The government was given options. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the way that this was structured, the group that I was in was working on this. It was actually kind so of So you cool. happened to land in the best possible group that you could have been in because Almost. converts were having yes. a heyday. They were until, because remember, all these financial stocks are getting shorted. Mm-hmm. So- the government announces a no short, like a short selling ban mm-hmm. on financial stocks. Now, this is another wrinkle, and this might be a little bit over people's heads, but one of the main types of investors who invest in converts are convertible arbitrage hedge funds. Now, that's going to be like a lot of like gobbledygook, but basically what it means is that watch our video on duration, but it basically kind of means that they are buying a convert, but they don't actually want to have any exposure to whether the share price goes up or down. They just want to own, it's called like the volatility. They're trying Mm -hmm. to monetize the fact that this gets a little complicated, but understand they're buying converts, they're shorting the underlying stock. And all these converts were financial (laughs) institutions that were had to raise money. So they own all these financial converts. The value of the converts going down because the share price is going down and people are worried about bankruptcy and they can't short the stock because now there's a no short selling ban. So now all these convertible ARB hedge funds blow up. Mm -hmm. So shortly after basically the group that I was in went kapoofy. Right. Uh, for a little bit. But at the time, it was actually a really kind of cool place to be because Morgan Stanley, everyone's watching them, seeing what's going to happen. They need this emergency capital. You also have the U.S. Treasury lending money in a format that is exactly what I was doing. So it was a really kind of cool place to weather the storm, so to yeah. speak, until, uh, until shit hit the fan there as well. And that's why I later then moved again, because that group had, happened to blow up as well. But that is um, crazy. Yeah. No. So, so I, I want to know, Jen, though, for you, because now you are in sitting here, Lehman has just gone under. Mm-hmm. And how do you get another job? Because people are laying people off. Everyone's right. worried. Like, what do you do next? Yeah. So um, it's funny. It was like, go, go, resume, activate. Like, yeah, yeah. all of a sudden, it was like, okay, I got to put together a resume. I mean, I was on the phone with my parents. I'm, my mom was so sweet. She was like, maybe you should go, like, learn how to cook in Italy for a year or something. And I was like, I needed to be financially independent, right? Like, I was like, yeah, that's great. I don't have that much money. I've only been working for two years. I can't just go bugger off to Italy. Yeah. So I immediately, like, like launched into my alumni network at my school, everyone I had talked to. And Lehman had this reputation for producing these really outstanding people. So I started getting calls from all the other banks too, being like, want to come work for us? Want to come work for us? So it was like this little unspoken thing that was happening because we all showed up to work every day at 6am. And then people would be like, I'm going to go get coffee. And they'd be like, okay, are you going to be back in three hours? And we'd be like, we are. It's funny you should say that. And this is on a desk where you usually can't even get off the desk to pee under normal circumstances. Because we were just really sitting there all day, like not doing anything, just listening to the news. So 
I was going and interviewing at all these other banks. I was actually at Goldman Sachs in a final round interview when they made the announcement that Warren Buffett was making yeah. the investment oh, in wow. them. So I got to final rounds at a bunch of other banks and was kind of um, debating between all these different options and what was I going to do. And it was all for basically a lateral move, a job doing what I was doing in interest rate sales, just at a different bank or in maybe a slightly different group that had some more kooky elements to it. But it was all variations on a theme. And then we're sitting there and this must have been, I forget how long it was after. And I was in between interviews that day. So I'm sitting on the desk. The floor is half empty, maybe two thirds empty at this point. And the equity guys actually sat down at the far end of our floor and they start like buzzing and there's chatter and they're all like, <laughs> and I was the most junior person on the rates on the fixed income side at that point. And they were like, Jen, Jen, go find out what's going on. And I was like, I don't want to go down there. And they're like, go find out, go find out. <laughs> so I get up out of my desk. And again, we have these long rows and it's computer mm -hmm. screens and it's things called, it's these big, basically dashboards with all of the built-in hard lines to all of our clients. And then something called a hoot where you could make an announcement. <laughs> you could hoot. You can make an announcement over basically a megaphone. Either you had the option to hoot just your row, just yeah. the entire trading floor, the entire yeah. firm. Like you could yeah. make a firm wide call over the hoot. <laughs> wow. It was like, you know, morning announcements in high school. So I start walking down to the other end of the floor to see what's happening with the equity guys. And Lehman was, was one of these fancy early 2000s offices. Everyone's glass doors everywhere. And like, there's these big double glass doors to the trading floor and they burst open. And this group of men in suits starts walking in and they're, and they make a left and they start walking exactly towards me. And I was like, shit, shit, shit. What do I do? What do I do? <laughs> so I turn around and I start calmly, but like very quickly walking back to my desk and they're following me. And I was like, who are these people? Is this the Federales? Like, what did I do? And so I walk back down my row and now everyone's staring at me because I'm being chased basically by this group of dudes in suits. And I walk back to my row and it's a true story. And these guys come right up behind me and they grab the microphone of the desk of the hoot at the desk next to mine because it was empty because yeah. <laughs> that woman yeah. was off at an interview at, at that time. <laughs> and the guy turns on the firmware and hoot and he goes, my name is Bob Diamond. I'm the CEO of Barclays Capital and we just bought Lehman Brothers. Uh, and I'm standing there about to pee my pants. <laughs> and one of the guys who I will not name turns to me and he goes, you guys don't stand a fucking chance. Wait, and I who, was like, to, to, to one you? Of the, yeah, to me, to a 22-year-old first-year associate. This was Wait. a C-level executive at Barclays Capital. Why would they say that? Well, because again, right, they're merging these two companies, oh, right? Like, so, but, but they were buying the investment banking division. So like that's yeah, but the they thing. didn't yeah. want the people. <laughs> but no, I assumed that they would have wanted the people. They wanted some of us. And so some, that yeah, yeah. launched a very, very hard and brutal interview process for everyone who was staying from Lehman, hoping to get a job at Barclays. They took fewer than 30% of us. And I felt like I didn't, again, I'd been told I didn't stand a chance. <laughs> and I was kind of bouncing around these offers from a couple of other competing banks at the time. And, uh, sure enough, uh, unfortunately my relationship with that boyfriend, uh, ended. And so it ended on a Thursday night and I was up all night crying. I slept in my poor roommate, Laura's bed. I was like, Oh, this is the worst thing in the world. And I showed up the next morning, red eyed. And they were like, Hey, you're interviewing with the head of sales at Barclays oh today. And I was like, well, this isn't going to go well. So the interview lineup, I was the last one of the day. 
and all of my colleagues and rates were going before me. And the, the guy right ahead of me was this extremely bright guy who was a relative value specialist. He was building his own models. I was like, oh God, he's going to go in there and knock his socks off. And now I'm following that up and I'm the last one of the day. This guy wants to go off to his weekend house with his family or whatever. So I rolled into that interview and I had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. And that interview lasted for three hours. Oh, wow. And... Because we were just chatting the whole time. And I rolled out of there. The guy ahead of me did not get the job. Um, <laughs> I was one of maybe, I think, two people at my level that they took. Wow. And, um, and I got the job at Barclays. And that's how I got my job. But yeah, I mean, it was just, it was totally insane. So funny, because I was bonkers. waiting for you to tell me how you got the job at Morgan Stanley. I forgot that you actually stayed at Barclays. No, for a I stayed bit. at Barclays. And actually, so I ended up moving to Morgan Stanley two years later for totally separate reasons. But actually, the crazier story is, so my now husband, he graduated from business school, spent mm. the whole summer with an offer, a full-time associate offer on the trading floor in interest rate trading at Lehman Brothers. We obviously had not met. Um, <laughs> he says he saw me when he was a summer associate. I was like, no, you didn't. But anyways... <laughs> But he started his job September 15th, 2008, the day that Lehman went bankrupt and showed up to a firm that no longer existed. And literally no one, they forgot to fire him. So he just kept showing up every day hoping that someone would like need something and he could help. So he just like lurked creepily long enough. And after Barclays bought Lehman, they didn't fire him. So he kept showing up. And so finally- So he never even had to interview? He just like, just- just kept, he just kept showing up. And so, because he didn't even have a title. And they oh made this God. pledge that they would honor the offers that all yeah, incoming yeah, yeah. analysts and associates well, so had. I was going to say, with Morgan Stanley, it was the same thing where banks, they tend to overhire, they tend to overfire. It's a cycle, but they want to maintain relationships, especially for the new hires, the analysts, the associates that are coming out of undergrad from their target schools. Mm-hmm. And so, when I was at Morgan Stanley and like everyone's getting fired in CDOs, although actually there was no guarantee. You have no idea. They could have fired us. I assumed I was getting fired. That's why I was like, I got to find a new job. And I'm like interviewing left and right. And they actually did eventually fire people in sales and trading who were analysts. But initially in like the first few rounds, because by the way, they were on like round nine, 10, 11, it just kept going. But in the first few rounds, they like with your husband, they were, they didn't want to sully the relationship and have it look bad that they've made an offer to somebody and then they just let them go because by the way he was a warden he's gonna go back and he's gonna tell us it just doesn't look good so no I mean that's the the good news if you are someone who is junior starting your job be a little bit comforted by the fact that you are you're cheap enough they don't care and you have the relationships with your school most likely Yeah. But actually, so the other guy that worked with me in CDOs, he was a Williams grad. By the way, it's a fantastic school. was not a target school for Morgan Stanley. It's a very small liberal arts college. It's a college. small liberal yeah. arts college. But he was very worried he was on the chalking block because he, he got in not through the form of recruiting cycle. He somehow was able to do it. And that's very impressive to be able to do that. But he actually wasn't. He wasn't fired. He, he stayed in CDOs for like the long haul. And then right. I don't know what he's doing now. But So, I mean, there was so much opportunity that ended up coming out of that. I did meet yeah. my husband. But also, I now started working for this new hybrid group, navigating this new firm. And it was really tough at first. I was very unhappy. I missed the Lehman culture. The Barclays culture was so different. Right. I was being given tasks like, go get my dry cleaning and, and things like that. And <laughs> As I was an associate? Like, yeah, as an associate. And I was like, 
this isn't what I signed up for. I thought I was so big and important and now I've just been cut down to size. And the Barclays people didn't necessarily love the Lehman people coming in because the Lehman people were all like, Lehman's the best. And they were like, we bought you. We own you. You suck. Um, and so, you know, there was even of the Lehman people who stayed, there ended up being a pretty high attrition rate to other banks and people would kind of mm. go off in groups because people who didn't get yeah. the Barclays offer would then go to another bank yeah. and, and then recruit yeah. all their old friends to come work for them. Lehman people well, are thick as thieves and they all yeah. still stay together today. Well, that happened with my husband because he was at Merrill and then mm -hmm. he came over with his boss to Morgan Stanley because, again, having been bought by Bank of America because mm -hmm. the culture was Big different. Culture so shot, they then yeah. came over to Morgan Stanley and but yeah. so it's like you were saying with Lehman people would go places as groups because that's how people that's do it right. it's like they know these people they know they're really good workers and they'll be like come with me I'm doing this thing come so what me. was interesting was I was now plugged into a group of Barclays working for all Barclays people and I felt like I I was unhappy I mean I almost got fired at one point because in a day when the brushing your hair. U.S. Treasury. No, this was before the hairbrushing incident <laughs> of 2012. Um, no, this was the, the great lunch incident of 2008. So basically, I, I didn't have any meaningful tasks to do. I was just sitting there being given almost demeaning tasks and kind right. of being hazed, quite frankly. Oh, and there was a day where there was massive volatility in the market. And so just so you guys know, backing up like two steps, everything you do at an investment bank is monitored, okay? Every mm -hmm. single email you send, everything mm -hmm. in a Bloomberg chat, it's all recorded and monitored. And guess what? A sampling is sent to your boss to review. And I was sitting there all day, every day, not all day, every day, but apparently like one day when there was massive volatility in the treasury market and I should have been paying attention. And apparently I had a 62 thread email chain with my college roommate talking about what we were going to order for lunch. Uh, and so I got a text from the head of the hedge fund sales group at Barclays Capital being like, who is Laura? And I was like, oh, she's my college roommate. Why? Do you know her? And he was like... <laughs> he was like, I just had to read through this email chain about whether or not you're going to get broccoli on your salad. I was like, oh my God, I'm so mortified. But anyways, <laughs> and so what ended up happening is basically my old boss who had been the head of sales at Lehman, they ended up bringing her back in and I ended up going to work for her. And we hadn't had the closest relationship when we were at Lehman, but now when I, when she was at Barclays, I was like, oh, thank God, <laughs> someone who understands me, who comes from the same place as me. And we ended up building a really close relationship and we should have her on the podcast. Actually, she's wonderful. And yeah, even my husband, I mean, after just floating around for like three months and no one knowing what to do with him, finally, this woman, Mimi Duff, who I still think to this day, thanks Mimi, um, got to have Mimi on the podcast too. She was like, hey, you do you work at research? And he was like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> and she was like, great. I need you to research this stuff for me. And he was like, okay, sounds excellent. And he did it. And she was like, oh, this is good. Who are you? And he was like, oh yeah. Hi, I'm a, I'm, I'm an associate. And she was like, great. And then one guy got fired on the swaps desk and she was like, go trade swaps. So, <laughs> like, that's how it went. But no, and, and so many wonderful things ended up coming out of it. It was definitely a tough transition, but yeah. for anyone who's looking at the current volatility in the financial sector right now, and is either nervous about starting their career, nervous about their existing career, nervous about how it's going to impact their lives. Yep. I mean, honestly, we are not equipped. It's above our pay grade to tell you what's going to happen, but <laughs> there can be wonderful opportunities that come out of these things. And actually, I will say, I guess it is also why I met my husband as well, because he came over after Bank of America bought Merrill Lynch and happened to go into the group where my brother worked. And so I met him through my brother. 
That's exactly right. So yeah, so, there you go. <laughs> yeah, you never know what kind of happy accidents will come your way out of these things. I mean, it was not fun by any means, but God, no. we'd all just had the balls to buy the S&P 500. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Actually, the one thing, if I had money back in 2007, I remember because understanding CLOs and the convert stuff, there was so much dislocation where it's like, this is so stupid. Converts were trading below parity, which made absolutely no sense. Like, yeah, could have made a lot of money. Well, no, I just didn't have any money. <laughs> if I had money, but being a first-year analyst, uh, I was borrowing money from my parents to build well, the wall to that's, live I think in my apartment. <laughs> yeah, I think that's such a lesson, though, that so many people have learned is that, and that's why when SVB went under, I remember there was this scramble to form consortia, consortiums, mm. consortii, I don't know, <laughs> that weekend to be like, let's buy as much as we can because everyone learned from Lehman yeah. that, yeah. hey, listen, the recovery on these things is actually not zero. We joke about this, but I got a letter last summer and it was like, great news. You're eligible to receive your <laughs> Lehman Brothers pension. And I was like, oh, this is a scam. <laughs> don't try to fool me. It was real. I have a Lehman. I mean, granted, it's like $5, but it just shows you what, what a great place it was to work that I had a pension after working there for only like two and a half years. But like, yeah. So, I mean, I do think it is actually like a really key takeaway that fortune yeah. favors the bold. And yeah. if you're able to take risk, if you're starting your career in a period of financial crisis, you almost have carte blanche because people aren't going to be like, oh, you bounced around from job to job or, or maybe you didn't have yeah. the most successful career because they'll look at it with a grain of salt. So right. take those risks now versus, yeah. hey, if you screw up during a time of stability, that's on you. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. No, it's um, so true. Well, anyways, no, this was a fun little trip down memory lane. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like I need a martini after this one, but um, <laughs> we hope you guys enjoyed. And as always, we will be, I think, back to our regularly scheduled programming, not talking about ancient history in our next episode. <laughs> what we wanted to do with the next couple of episodes is we're going to do a Q&A. We will have a formal call to have questions that you would like to have answered on the podcast. On and any topic, guys. Any topic. And we also really want want to do a succession podcast in anticipation of the finale. Don't tell events. me. Because, oh, oh, I, I thought oh, no, no, I no, still no, haven't no. watched the last episode. No, no, no. I'm not going to give away any spoilers. I'm just saying Jen is, she was an English major, so she is very into analyzing what pushes story arcs forward and all that kind of stuff. I am more interested in the finance of it all. And we have some videos on social media on some of that stuff, but I think it's, I don't know. I think it's going to be kind of wait, fun to talk on. about. Kristen, those, I will say this guys. Okay. You don't need to pretend around us, okay? We know that 90% of you have no idea what the heck is going on in succession, aside from the drama of the interpersonal relationships. But Kristen does a phenomenal job of explaining what's actually happening with the finance stuff. Go and watch her videos. They're outstanding. I watched, I was like, oh, okay. Like, I was like, I didn't understand how this was going to work, but I felt too stupid to ask. If you're feeling too stupid to ask about succession, go watch those videos. They are priceless. Yeah. That's, I think, what we have coming up next. Yeah, we succession have some... and when they grab back will probably be our next few episodes. And as we said, we have some really fantastic interviews that we have just done that I'm so excited about. I actually said to Jen, we recorded one this morning. I was like, can we, can we release it now? And Jen was like, no, it doesn't make any sense yet. So. Well, yeah, no, we we're just trying to, we're trying to yeah. keep you guys at least on some little journey with us. <laughs> you know, you've now seen the ups and downs of living through an investment banking crisis past and present. And again, if you haven't listened to our first episodes, go back and find out what the heck an investment bank is so you'll know what the heck we've been talking about this whole time. But this was so much fun. Thank you, Kristen, as always. Thanks, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Awesome. Thanks, Bye. guys. Bye. -bye. 
Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 